We're standing in the presence of a holy God. He has invited us to come together as one and to stand before him and worship him. And I'm going to ask you at this time to stand in the reading of his word. 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us very great precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You guys doing all right today? Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm, I'm skeptical that we're doing all right this morning, but I think we're okay. So this is week 10 of our series on becoming like Jesus, where we've been exploring the fruit of the Spirit. And before we go any further, I need to get something off my chest. I got a public confession to make this morning. I've preached the same sermon to you nine weeks in a row. I know we've been talking about different things every week, but it's been the same exact sermon nine weeks in a row, and I got bad news. I'm doing it again this morning. We're going to talk about it again today. So the first week of the series, I I said to you this. I said, the same God that stood at the door of your heart and knocked so that you might experience salvation is still standing there knocking and inviting you into the deeper life where you become like Jesus in character and action. That's been the the foundational thought of this entire series, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that calls us to salvation is not just there to save us, but is there to also transform us. And so our goal as Christians, and if you want to write this down on your paper, you want to like tattoo it on your forehead, something like that, uh, something good for us to understand that as Christians, our goal must to become like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life, to see who Jesus is, to see how he interacts in the world, and to ultimately become like him, to be fully transformed. And what that requires is us for us to fully surrender, 
And I know that's a, a difficult thing for us. That's something that we don't often like, but we're ultimately called to fully surrender and be fully led by the Spirit of Christ. And that's been the message every week of the sermon series so far. It's been the message whether we've talked about love or joy or peace or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, which we're talking about today. The message has been to look toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and allow him to fully transform us, allow him to to make us like him. And so we're going to look at Galatians 5 again. Thanks, Sam. I knew I was going to need it, so I appreciate it. Uh, That's the warning for you all this morning that I got a a few too many notes, and I've already gone through the water, so I needed a a bit more. Ultimately, I was just singing a bit too loud during worship, and you know, um, so... I want to bookend the series by going back to Galatians 5 for us. This is the the scripture that we read the first week of this sermon series where we talked about becoming like Jesus. And I want to read it again this morning to put it back into our minds to, to remember why it is that we're talking about this. So I'm going to read Galatians 5, 16 through 26 again for us. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. He says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. They're sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That's been the, the underscoring aspect of what we're talking about throughout this series. To, to focus in on the things that are the fruit of the Spirit and to put off the things that are the, the results of our fleshly living. And what I said in week one was that there are three things that Paul ultimately asks us to do here in this scripture. Anyone remember what they are? Okay, I'll help you out a little bit. Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Those are the three things that Paul highlights for us throughout this passage. To walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit. That's ultimately our task as Christians. And as we do that, what happens is the fruit of the Spirit, it grows in our lives. And our appetite for the works of the flesh, it actually lessens and lessens. As we focus in on the gospel, as we focus in on the Spirit, as we look to walk in the ways of Jesus, we become more like like Jesus, and we become less like our sinful selves. And yet, here we are towards the end of this. Paul ends his list of the fruit of the Spirit in a very interesting way. He ends it with self-control. 
Now, you would think if Paul were doing this correctly, he would start with self-control, right? It's the first fruit by which everything else blossoms into our life. But what's actually interesting here is the fruit of the spirit of gentleness— or sorry, uh, that was last week— The fruit of the Spirit of self-control is unique among the list of the fruit of the Spirit. All the other fruit of the Spirit are intentionally focused upon God, but this one is focused in upon us. It's focused in on our character. Ultimately, all the other ones are focused in on us becoming more like Jesus, putting on the character of God, but this one's focused in on us putting off our own character, to be self-controlled. It's a little bit different in how he flips the script on us. And here's the bare-bone truth that we need to understand about this. Our war against the flesh is never over on this side of eternity. It's never over on this side of eternity, and we have to put off the flesh in order to live the life that's truly life. We don't get to this point of growing in all the other fruit of the Spirit and then ultimately just living however we want to right? That's not how the Christian life works. We grow in all the things of God, but we're still to put off the fleshly desires as well. So while it's last on Paul's list here, self-control isn't the pinnacle of Christian spirituality, but rather the engine of it. I'm going to read that again for us. Self-control isn't the pinnacle of Christian spirituality, but rather the engine of it. It's the the part by which all the other things begin to move. And so I want to quote a couple of people here and read these from them. It says, from Christopher Wright, he says it like this. He says, Paul has in mind that unless we exercise this somewhat negative but necessary practice of self-control and live in a disciplined way, a way disciplined by the Holy Spirit, we will not be likely to bear the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. So unless we're willing to deny ourselves, unless we're willing to to live self-controlled lives, then it's likely that the other fruit of the Spirit aren't actually going to blossom in our lives. Let's listen to what Jerry Bridges says, because he puts it in a similar way. He he says that self-control is an essential character trait of the godly person that enables obedience to the words of Jesus, where he says, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, which is in Luke 9.23. Self-control is ultimately the whole idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. It's putting off the old self, putting off our fleshly desires, and putting on the new self. It's what Eugene Peterson says is a long obedience in the same direction. It's seeking after the things of God, seeking to live a life pleasing to God, and living that out through the totality of our lives. And what's interesting about self-control is it's both a fruit and the means to a fruit. And what I mean by that is this. Self-control is something that we exercise so that the other fruit may grow, but as we exercise it, the Holy Spirit produces in us the ability to more faithfully exercise self-control. Now, I know that sounds circular, but it's supposed to be circular. The whole process of self-control is cyclical, and that's why I'm trying to call it the engine of Christian spirituality. As we practice it, we grow in it. And as we grow in it, we practice it more and more. And so it's this circular way of thinking, but it's how it works in us. Spiritual growth cannot happen without self-control. It can't happen, friends. Without self-control, we cannot grow into the type of people who look like Jesus. It's not possible for us. 
And so that's a a long introduction before we dive into our scripture this morning. And I'm going to encourage you to buckle up a bit. We got a lot of ground to cover. I left out a lot of it, so you guys can be thankful for that. I exercised at least a little bit of self-control, but it's still some long notes that we're going through. So I won't bore you with the boring stuff, which is actually really exciting stuff for me, um, but we're going to dive into it. So I want to reread 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4 for us. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This is good stuff for us this morning. I see that you're so excited about it. All of you, you're just like so excited to dive into this. I'm just kidding. Like every face is like this. It's good stuff for us this morning, I promise. Peter's wasting no time at all as he's diving into the beauty of the Christian life, even in his opening lines here. You know, oftentimes we can read these epistles and we can just skip over those first few lines of them because they're just like these extended greetings. But in them is so much goodness. Listen to, to how Peter is addressing those he's writing this letter to. He says, To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. He's starting again with the gospel. Like we have every week throughout this series, the gospel has played a crucial role through this. Through the grace of God, we are saved. It's by the grace of God that we are saved. And it's not by our own righteousness. It's not by our own good works. It's not by us living self-controlled lives and therefore earning a salvation. That's not what the life of Christ is. That's not what the gospel is. But rather, we are saved through the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. It's his righteousness that saves us. Not our own, not our good works, not us making ourselves good. We are saved through the righteousness of Jesus. And that's really good news to us because none of us here in this room are righteous. None of our good works are good enough. We are never able to live that type of life that God truly desires for us to live. We need Jesus in order to be saved. And what Peter is doing by focusing in on this first is he's bringing into our mind that this is a gift of God. It's a very precious gift. It's something that should leave us awestruck. Like I've said so many times, the gospel isn't just our starting point to the Christian faith. It's our daily participation in the Christian faith. We don't move on past the gospel. We should be awestruck by the good news of Jesus. You know, it's like the the old hymn says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. That should be our response to the gospel. 
That's what Peter is bringing to mind as he's addressing this letter. He's bringing to mind the wonder of our salvation because he knows that everything he's about to say, all that he's about to write to the church requires the foundation of a proper understanding of the gospel of grace. And that's key to our conversation today as it's been key to every other fruit of the Spirit. Self-control or living a life devoted only to the things of God is impossible apart from the gospel. It's impossible apart from the gospel. And so in my sermon today, I'm talking to Christians. I'm not talking to the non-Christians saying, hey, you better shape up. You better live self-controlled lives. You better pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and get in line. That's not what I'm doing this morning at all. Because like I've said, self-control, producing fruit in our lives, is impossible outside of the gospel. And so my message today is primarily to the Christians. And the reason that this is so important, like I just said, is self-control is not the means to salvation, but rather an outflow from it. Self-control is not the means to salvation, but rather an outflow of it. Too often, as Christians, we flip this on its head. We, we go into the world around us and we say, hey, you got to shape up, guys. You got to live correctly. Why do you do the things that you do? It's because they don't know Jesus. They need Jesus first. We need the gospel in order to understand all that I'm going to say this morning. We don't clean ourselves up to come to God. Amen? That's good news for all of us. We come to God as we are. In all of our sin, in all of our shame, in all of our wrongdoing, we come to him. We say, God, I am unclean. Make me clean. I can't do this on my own. I need you to make me clean. And, by, and as a byproduct of the power of the Spirit working in us, we become clean. As a byproduct of coming to Jesus, we become clean, both positionally before God and also practically in how we live and act in the world around us. The gospel starts and fuels this entire process. And without it, the, this, this idea of self-control is not just difficult, but it's impossible. Without the gospel, it's impossible. So those are Peter's first two verses here, reminding us of the gospel. And then he dives into possibly two of the meatiest verses in the New Testament. And I'm going to spare you a lot of the nerdiness here, even though I really want to go into it and keep you here for like three hours as we dive into all the nerdies here. But I'm going to spare you. I'm going to show some self-control this morning. But I am going to reread verses three and four for us again. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Like I said, there's a lot here. But if I were to sum these verses up, I would sum it up like this. Through union with Christ, we have been given all that we need to live sanctified lives. Through union with Christ, we've been given all that we need to live sanctified lives. So raise your hand 
I want participation. Raise your hand if you've... Okay, well, not yet. I haven't asked the question yet. I mean, you guys jumped the gun right there. Raise your hand if you've heard the term union with Christ before. Is that a term that we know? Okay, so a lot of us know what union in Christ is. If you're here and you have no clue what I'm talking about, that's okay. It's okay. There's no prerequisite of knowledge to come in and listen to the sermon this morning. Union with Christ is a theological term. It's something that describes the totality of our relationship with Jesus, and it's ultimately what Peter means when he writes that we may participate in the divine nature. He's talking about how we are to live in the world around us. It's by participation in the divine nature of Jesus Christ. One theological dictionary says this about union with Christ. Christian experience is more than an imitation of the life and teaching of Jesus. In other words, it's not just about looking to Jesus and imitating it and trying our best in the world around us. It goes on to say, it is the present experience of the risen Christ indwelling the believer's heart by the Spirit. So we don't just have who Jesus is and look to him and try our best to live a life that's pleasing to him. No, we have the Spirit working in us. We have Christ working in us, producing in us these characteristics, producing in us the life that ultimately looks like Jesus. We don't do it on our own. It's Christ in us through the Spirit, crucifying the flesh and its passions so that we might fully tap into life that is truly life, which is found in Christ alone. It's found in nowhere else but Christ alone. Ultimately, this idea of union with Christ, we're going to go back to Galatians 2.20. And we may have done it in every single sermon this series. I'm not sure or not, but it's been in a lot of them. And it's because it's so important to all of this. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If we were to pick one verse on what union with Christ is, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's him living inside of me. It's not me trying to make myself better. It's the spirit of the living God working in me to help me live the transformed life. And that's been the message throughout this entire series, that it's not us trying to do it by our own power, but it's rather by the power of the Spirit working in us and us yielding ourselves to him. This is what it means when Peter says that Jesus has given us everything by his divine power to live a godly life. We don't have to search high and low and try to uncover secret knowledge and look through the Bible like, I just wish I could find the answers to figure out what a life pleasing to God looks like. God outlines for it for us very simply. Tells us to surrender to the simple truth of the gospel. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We yield to the simple truth of the gospel and we yield to the ongoing work of the Spirit as he works in us and leads us to become more and more like Jesus. So as we're understanding these two verses, uh, does anyone remember the threefold nature of salvation? Anyone remember that? Shout it out if you do. What's the threefold nature of salvation? Oh, okay, okay. We are saved. Just justification. 
we're being saved, which is sanctification, and we will be saved, which is glorification. All right, you guys got that threefold nature of salvation. This would be a good one to write down in your notes uh, because it's one that's really important for our Christian life, that we are saved, which is justification. We're being saved, which is sanctification, and we will be saved, which is glorification. It's the, the holistic idea of what salvation is. And all of these, whether we're talking about justification or sanctification or glorification, they're all byproducts of our union with Christ and represent what Peter calls his very great and precious promises. It's the already but not yet nature of that hope. That we've escaped corruption because we've been born again while recognizing that we still battle against our flesh currently. It's already, but not yet. Through union in Christ, we have been made new, which is that process of justification, but we're still in a lifelong process of putting off the old and putting on the newness of Christ, which is sanctification. And then until in the resurrection, our bodies are fully transformed and we no longer struggle against the flesh, which is that process of glorification. It's already, but not yet. So I want to go on and move ahead to 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. With all of that as our foundation, we're going to move on to what we would typically be like, okay, give me something practical that we can sink our teeth into. Let's listen to what Peter says here. And this is typically referred to as the ladder of faith. He says, for this very reason, everything that he just talked about, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. But that's a bit odd, isn't it? Is it a bit odd? We just concluded that through union with Christ, we've been given all that we need to live sanctified lives. But now Peter is saying that we need to add stuff. He's like, you've received everything that you need for a godly life, but now add to it this and to this and to this and to this. Ultimately, Peter isn't contradicting himself, but he's adding the therefore to his previous point. It's taking what we've been given and now putting it into practice. It's the process of ongoing sanctification. So here's the full thought, the full summary so far. Through union with Christ, we've been given all that we need to live sanctified lives. Therefore, we must put it into practice. God doesn't just give us everything that we need and say, okay, you're done. You're fully good. Go live however you want. He gives us everything that we need, and he says, now live into this. Not in your own power, but through the power of the Spirit. And throughout all of this, the, 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 uh, the sequence of all of this is important. Faith is our entrance into salvation. It's the first thing that Peter lists here, but it's also our entrance into the deeper life of sanctification. Our goal is to become like Jesus, and that happens through a lifelong progression of faith that I once heard Matt Chandler, and I love this, he referred to it as sloppy obedience. And that's very good news for us. It's sloppy obedience. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right the first time, or the second time, or the 77th time, or the 3,974th time. It's sloppy obedience. As we go, we learn more and more. We grow in this life. And through sloppy obedience, we end up in the transformed life. 
And so let's take a closer look to see where faith applied can take us. So there are eight things that are listed here. We have faith, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. And I mentioned at the beginning that some people refer to this as a ladder, but I think it's more akin to a mountain. And we're going to put that on the screen here. So I think it's more akin to a mountain like this rather than a ladder. And we're going to call this a faith mountain, all right? I know it's cheesy, but just go with it. This is Faith Mountain because at the trailhead, at the bottom, the base camp of the mountain, we have faith. It's the starting point, not the destination. And that's important for us to realize. After setting out from faith, we climb up the mountain and we're we're led to the first marker of goodness. We go from faith to goodness. We begin to do the good works that God has created us to do. We participate as ministers of reconciliation. We talked all about this when we talked about goodness earlier in this sermon series. But a common misconception that we have is that we often think that we need to know everything before we can serve in God's kingdom, but it's actually the other way around. As we serve God, as we have an understanding of faith, as we have an understanding of grace, we start to serve in God's kingdom. And as we serve in God's kingdom, it leads us to desire more and increase our knowledge of him. It leads us to desire God more, to increase our knowledge of him. And so we move up the mountain again. We progress from goodness and we go up towards the base camp of knowledge and we grow in our understanding of God and his ways. This is the moment where we're starting to dive into scripture. We're active in a small group. We're reading books by old dead guys. Like really wonderful books by old dead guys. If you want recommendations, just come see me afterwards. Got plenty of them for you. We're adding to our knowledge about God. We're diving in to what it is his life requires of us, who he is, his characteristics, and we're learning more and more about him. But as we learn more about who God is, as we learn more about his ways, we then realize that he has things that he requires of us. He has things that he requires of us. So we move up the mountain once again to the marker of self-control. But at the marker of self-control is where the trip up the mountain gets treacherous. It gets more difficult. The first three markers on the mountain, they're pretty easy. It's pretty, pretty easy going. We got faith, we got goodness through service, and we got knowledge. Pretty easy trek up the mountain so far. But we get to self-control, and there's mud everywhere. There's shifting rocks. There's some quicksand. It gets really difficult for us when we get to this marker. It's turned the pleasant hike up the mountain to one where we keep seeming to fall down over and over and over again. We get to the point of self-control with a realization that we're supposed to, to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received, but we can't seem to do that. We have the standard that we are to live by, but we can never seemingly get to that spot. We fall down over and over and over again. We love God. We want to serve him. We want to grow in our understanding of him. But self-control, it's hard. And it's important for us to understand that self-control is hard. And so I think more often than not, for many Christians, this is where they admit defeat. 
where they admit defeat and they say, you know, getting to knowledge of God, serving in his kingdom, it's good enough. They're content with the first three markers of the hike because self-control, it's just too much. It's too difficult. I keep falling over and over and over again. And surely that's not what God wants for me. They think, well, at least I've made it up some of the mountain, right? I've done some of the work. I've gotten somewhere. Here's the problem for us. We often see faith, goodness through service, and knowledge as a central Christianity while viewing self-control, perseverance, godliness, and love as optional Christianity. We see the first three things as, yes, these are absolute things that we must do, but the rest of them are like, yeah, you know, that's optional. It's okay if I don't fully get there. God knows my heart. He does, and it's evil. We need to be transformed. See, we never make it to where God intends us to be because we give up when it gets hard. But just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not worth it. Most of the things that are worth it in life are hard. Because if we give up when we get to self-control, we never make it to the far side of the mountain. We never make it to godliness and mutual affection and love. We need the perseverance in order to get there. If we can learn to embrace self-control through our many failings, persevere through those, then getting to the other markers, getting to the life that's truly life, the life that God intends for us becomes much easier. Because on this particular hike, as we get over the mountain, there's a spirit-powered gondola that just takes us down the mountain. It's no longer on our own effort. It's through the power of the Spirit leading us to godliness, mutual affection, which is brotherly love, and then love, which is agape love or God's love. If we can just keep going, if we can learn self-control and persevere to the summit, everything gets easier. We can't give up. Even when it's difficult, even when we've fallen 5,000 times, we pick ourselves up, look to Jesus, keep going. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, 8 through 11. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting what they have been cleansed from, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing for us to remember this morning. If we fail to advance to the deeper life where we experience true transformation, we are what Peter labels as ineffective and unproductive. And I don't know about you, but those are not descriptors that I want of my faith. They're not descriptors that I want as part of my walk with God. I don't want to be ineffective and unproductive. I want to grab hold of life that's truly life. 
Somewhere along the way, we've made the mistake that life with Jesus is a once and done prayer, or it's a mere basic application of elementary principles. Somewhere along the way, we've gone wrong because it's not about that at all. It's a lifelong journey with total transformation as its goal. And the way that we reach that goal is by keeping in step with the Spirit. We come to Jesus, serve in his kingdom, learn more about him, and then through the difficult task of self-control and perseverance, we become like him by surrendering our ways and embracing his ways. And I think it's really important for us to see that if we don't do this, that there's a warning here. If we don't do this, we're labeled as nearsighted and blind, as Peter says. It, that, that wording ultimately means that we're deliberately choosing a path other than the one Jesus has set out for us. We're, re- we're deliberately receiving his grace, coming to salvation, saying, okay, that's good enough. I'm going to go live for myself again. It's deliberately choosing another path. When we fail to embrace self-control, when we fail to embrace perseverance, we actively say that the gospel is unimportant. And yes, I know that those are very strong words. I know that's a, a difficult saying, but it's true. When we fail to embrace self-control, we actively say that the gospel is un, unimportant. Let me say it even a bit stronger for us this morning. A person who claims to be a Christian but is totally uninterested in self-control is not actually a follower of Jesus. Yes, those are difficult words. Those are hard words for us, but somewhere along the way, we have so misconstrued the gospel that we've reduced it to this simple prayer where we say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, please come into my heart, and we think that we're good to go. That's not the gospel, friends. The gospel is found in Luke 9.23 that we've already read, but I'll read it again. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. To come to Jesus requires us to deny ourselves, to say, I'm no longer interested in my way of living. I want to embrace your way of living. I know I can't do that on my own, Jesus. I need you to do that in me. I need your righteousness working in me. We can't just say, well, just pray a prayer and you're good to go, friend. That's not the gospel of Jesus. Let's refer to the Great Commission. We all like that one, right? This is uh, Mission Sunday. It's Great Commission. We're, We're excited about that. Let me read Matthew 28, 19 through 28 again for us. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if we stop there, okay, great. We can make disciple be whatever we want it to be, right? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Self-control applied. Living the type of life that God would have us to live. See, following Jesus requires that you actually follow him. I know, crazy concept for us, but following Jesus requires us to actually follow him. Being a disciple of Jesus means spending time with him, learning his ways, serving in his kingdom. 
Learning what he requires and surrendering ourselves over and over and over again. Allowing the Spirit to work in us. And listen to the promise again in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I have just a little bit more for us this morning. It's important for us to realize that as we put these things into practice, as we commit to living this type of life, the Spirit-empowered, sloppily obedient life, the promise is that we'll never stumble. Not that we'll never have difficulties. Not that we're going to live the perfect life the first time we go around it. That we will never stumble. That our eyes will be fixed upon our Savior. That we will keep and step with the Spirit by the Spirit's power working in us. We must keep in step with the Spirit, though. I'm going to go, and I know I've already gone a little long, but this is important for us. Luke 8, 13 through 15. Jesus is telling the parable of the sower. And he's describing what's happening here with the seeds of faith that are thrown out, the seeds of the gospel that's thrown out. And I want to read some of them. Those on the rocky ground are those who receive the word with joy when they hear it but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in, the midst, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. There's a warning throughout Scripture for us to remain in Christ, to remain in Him, to abide in Him. And that happens by knowing and believing the gospel and from there exercising self-control and perseverance, allowing the Spirit to continue to work in us. It's not on our own effort. It's the Spirit working in us. Remember, by His power, we've been given all that we need, but we must apply it. We must practice it. The Spirit is at work within us. And through the compounding nature of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, self self-control ripens in our lives. That's how it's a fruit. Every time we face temptation, every time we face that voice saying, do this, it's okay, just live the way that you want to. Every time we face that temptation and say no to the flesh and yes to the Spirit, we build more and more resiliency. We build more resiliency to be able to live the type of life that God would have us to live. So here's the ultimate message for us this morning. The bottom line, surrender to the gospel of Jesus. Surrender to it. Come to Jesus. Look him in the face and say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of living for my own ways. I need salvation. I need you to move in my life. 
Surrender to the gospel of Jesus. The gospel that says in Christ all your sins are forgiven and that he's empowering you to live a new life. Serve in his kingdom. Go into goodness. Go up the mountain. Go towards goodness. Keep going up the mountain and grow in your knowledge of him. And when things get hard, When things get difficult, when you're trying to learn how to implement self-control, keep going. Keep persevering. You're going to fall. You're going to slip. It's going to be difficult. But if you keep going, you win. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, he will pull you out of any snare that you may fall into along the way. Learn to persevere in self-control. And as we do all of this, As we embrace this type of life, we become like Jesus. We put on the traits of godliness, of brotherly love, and agape love. But in order to get there, we must be willing to lay down everything. And so that's the question I leave you with this morning. Are you willing to lay down everything? Are you willing to look upon Jesus, upon the good news of the gospel, and say, God, I surrender? I don't know what your pet sin is this morning. I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what it is that you find difficulty with in your life with God. You do. The Spirit does. And He wants you to surrender. Not so that you can stop having fun, but so that you can embrace life the way God intends life to be lived. Because the gospel of grace, the grace-filled life, is superior to any other way of life. Embrace the life that Jesus has. I don't know what your sin is, but I do know that forgiveness is available. I do know that even if you've blown it seven million times before, forgiveness is still available. And that through the power of the Spirit, you can not only be forgiven from it, but you can overcome it. You're not doomed to live the life that you're always struggling. You can overcome sin in your life through union with Christ. Not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's power in Jesus. He has given us all that we need to live godly lives. We just have to put it into practice. Please stand as we pray. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful. Thankful that this life isn't about us trying to earn our way towards salvation. But rather, it's about you looking at us, seeing that we can't measure up, dying on the cross for us, making a way where in us there was no way. And we are thankful that through the righteousness of Jesus, we have salvation. We're thankful that we are cleansed, that we are justified before you. And we're thankful that the message of salvation, the message of the gospel is not just once and done, but it's ongoing sanctification. It's Christ in us working. this morning we come to you and 
We're full of struggles. We're full of continued sin. We're full of things that we wish we could overcome, but we keep feeling like we're slipping and falling. And maybe some of us have even concluded that it's not worth it. I can't overcome. Why do I keep trying? We know that it's only by your spirit that we can overcome anything. It's only by your spirit that we can exercise a life of self-control. And so God, we ask for your, your spirit to ripen in us this morning, to give us the power to say no, to surrender to all those things that are binding us right now. We surrender. We ask you to fill us, to lead us, to guide us, to help us keep in step with the Spirit. In Christ's name that we pray, amen.